Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. My guest today is Mike Randall, one of my favorite humans. Mike and I first met in Boulder, Colorado after I'd failed to have a good preparation for my first ultra marathon and I had to pull out of the race. And I met Mike and he had done a heap of ultras and so he helped get me ready for my first 100 miler through the Rockies. And after hours and hours and hours of training together, we just got to know each other really well. This episode could go in 10 different directions, but the focal point is on Mike's experience with money. And he grew up without a lot, then had some entrepreneurial success, then had a fair bit, acquired all of the trappings of wealth, realized that none of that brought any happiness, and then with his family went through a process of minimalization of critiquing all of the stuff that they had and working out which bits brought them happiness, satisfaction, added to their life and which bits didn't. And then they really carved out the stuff that didn't bring satisfaction and happiness. And I just think there's something in that for the majority of us because for so many of us, myself included over the years, we become sort of slaves to money and the trappings of money and commercialism consumerism, and then we reduce our ability to be flexible. We're sort of stuck in a rut. So I really like this episode and I love Mike, so I hope you get something out of it. Well, hi, Mike. Welcome to The Antitoxin. Great to have you here today. Yeah, hey, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. No worries, man. So um, what I wanted to cover off today is one of the things that I love most about you is how focused you are on maintaining a quality of life that you have been able to achieve through, you know, achieving some entrepreneurial success and we'll, and we'll deal with that. But more importantly, I think you're so focused on every single piece of expenditure, if you like, you weigh up to ensure that if you spend money on something, is it going to add to your quality of life? And perhaps more importantly, is it going to force you to have to, you know, work harder or, or whatever the case? And it, it reminds me of a, of a Thoreau quote, you know, everyone listening to this will know that the catalyst, if you like, the genesis of this whole project was Thoreau and his notion that the mass of men leave, lead lives of quiet desperation, which sort of broke my heart and, and really got me thinking about how we can help more people live their dreams and, and sort of live life on their own terms. And he had another quote, which, which I love, which is the price of anything is the amount of your life you are prepared to pay for it. Meaning that whenever we're spending money in, in essence, there's, there's a potential sacrifice either of, of time or of money or of resources that, that have to be paid for it. And 
no one in my circle, no one that I know is more focused on that than you. So I wanted to sort of delve into that, but maybe you can kick off by just talking, you know, a little bit about your background. You're a, you're a natural born hustler and then sort of how you got to, to making your money. You certainly, you know, live large for a while with a, with a big house and all of that sort of stuff. And then, and then came to the realization that, that sort of minimalism, et cetera, was, was a better way to have a quality life. So maybe just talk me through, you know, how you, how you kind of got your entrepreneurial legs going and how it all kicked off for you. Well, that is a strong intro, Anthony. Much appreciated. Yeah, you know, there, I think in uh, the last handful, maybe even the last 10 years, there have been a lot of kind of lifestyle hacking and lifestyle design gurus popping up. And, you know, I, I certainly have an appreciation for that. And I, I think I came to it both uh, naturally and accidentally long before there was really a, a term put, put to it. It's tr- it is trying to find that balance between satisfaction in some kind of productive work and the rest of life. And uh, I started out fairly early, you know, back in, in elementary school, trying to find ways to do the many, many things I was wanting to do and trying to figure out how to finance it. So, you know, back in second, third grade, that was selling, you know, folded paper throwing stars and uh, little pieces of candy I'd buy in bulk uh, to classmates and sort of grew throughout the high school years, cutting grass and uh, doing all kinds, you know, I'd be the, the kid excited for the snow day, not for the sledding or the sleeping in, but, you know, getting up uh, around sunrise and knocking on doors and uh, trying to make a buck or two. The natural progression of that uh, in, in college where I, I was a full-time student, but uh, was concurrently running, depending on how you, what you consider a business, at least three or four businesses fairly seriously throughout my college years. Some, uh, you know, totally legitimate, some maybe not so (laughs) uh, above board, but uh, always with integrity. And um, that was my way to uh, pay for the stuff I wanted to do, which at the time was, and and still to this day, finding ways to see the world and kind of grab onto new experiences. So uh, that's a little bit of, of, of the backdrop. As far as my, you know, call it big professional win, I was a ticket scalper. I think you guys might call them ticket house or something along those lines. But uh, here, here in the U.S., there's a fairly big industry of people buying and then reselling tickets to events. And that's what I was doing, for, you know, from the first week in my uh, college years for about 14 years. And was able to take it from kind of a one-man business selling out in, in front of the basketball and football games at the University of Missouri to uh, what ended up being one of the top Inc. 500 companies in the country and big uh, office space and employees kind of across the country and was able to eventually get it to a sale, which was never my intention, but uh, has since afforded me the flexibility to uh, make other bad decisions. <laughs> so so, so that, that's a bit of the, uh, the early days. Kind of set the stage. I'm just about turning 44. Have a uh, family. My wife uh, Allison's been very much my partner in all things for now over 20 years, including the uh, ticket business. And uh, I think it should be said right up front that having a like-minded and preferably supportive spouse makes a huge difference in all things, and certainly in being able to design and then live the life that uh, you're shooting for, whatever that might be. So how's that for a start? 
It's good, man. So you grew the business based out of Austin, Texas, and you and I didn't know each other then, but it, it certainly sounds like you had a pretty palatial home and, you know, was sort of living, living the life. And then when did the notion of minimalism and, and bringing everything in and simplifying life come in for you? Well, uh, about half a decade before I got into uh, what I guess is now the, the minimalism movement, again, it was before it had a name, I was into the maximalism movement, um, which <laughs> meant, uh, you know, my, my guest house uh, in Austin was bigger than our family house is here now uh, in Boulder, Colorado. We had two pools because one pool wasn't enough. And, and really, you kind of get into the mindset, especially when you're in the circles of, you know, increasingly successful people in a, a town like Austin, where there's quite a bit of affluence, it becomes normal. You know, it's not a matter of a car for every driver. It's a car for every driver and then a, a weekend play toy. And then, uh, you know, you, you need to have a boat, of course, because it's the lakes there. And uh, it's just kind of one thing after another, after another. And kind of at the peak of things, you know, we had a you know 10,000 square foot office that was very nicely uh, appointed and about 6,000 square feet of very nicely furnished house. And the driveway was full and I ended up feeling like I was kind of a groundskeeper slash maintenance man slash administrator of my own life. And it was taking all of my time and most of my happiness. And ultimately, uh, we were able to make the move to Colorado and have a significantly simpler life that we planned for. So we, we sold probably 80% of what we had and donated and donated the rest and uh, kind of started from scratch here uh, in Boulder. And, you know, I don't give the impression that I'm living like a monk. I mean, we, we have a, a comfortable house with, you know, central air conditioning and, you know, we're, we're not uh, suffering here. That, that, that's not the idea. It was, it was more of how can we kind of right size things. I mean, with that came a significant reduction in uh, like our personal expenses to the point where had we continued to live as we were living in Austin, I would be stressed out, certainly working full time and fretting over the upkeep and maintenance and replacement of uh, many things, both physical and uh, otherwise in my life, which now, now I don't. So it's certainly made me happier. It's uh, made me wealthier and uh, it's removed a lot of the stress from relationships in all directions. Awesome. I was interviewing someone in Sydney who was actually my old leadership coach, I'm still going through the editing process on that one, but that will be uploaded at some point. And so he coaches some of the top executives in Australia, many in very large public companies. And his synopsis was that so many of these top level executives earning a lot of money are miserable. And they're miserable because they're, as they've climbed the corporate ladder, their expenses have got one step ahead of their their earnings at every step along the journey and they're trapped you know they have to keep going up the ladder because their their expenses keep going up and they they have to keep working for the man they have to have to keep doing stuff that they don't necessarily enjoy because otherwise they couldn't pay for the massive mortgage and the cars and the and the lifestyle etc and you know one of the things that I'm most fascinated by is how people are able to get off that railway track and sort of change onto a 
a more deliberate one where they're in control of their own destiny, not necessarily the bank and the and the mortgagees, et cetera. And you've certainly been able to do that, but I've never I've never met anybody who's done it as deliberately as you. So you basically had a what what was the point what was the decision point for you and Alison in Austin? How did you decide, you know, this is ridiculous we need to change? Was it a a single event or was it just sort of creeping up on you over a number of years? Well, you know, it's somewhat cliche and I think it's what a lot of people find when they get their kind of first uh, real taste of, you know, some financial success is you you want to get the things and have the things that uh, you didn't have. And I certainly didn't have, you know, money growing up, had very loving, supportive parents who never made a whole lot of money. And, you know, we had a pretty tame by that i mean there was there were very few vacations there certainly were never new cars we lived in a, a small house in a very modest kind of working class neighborhood and i you know like everybody else get, got to see how other people lived and thought huh i want to have the nicer cars and the bigger tvs and, and all things like that so once I uh, could afford it, I started going hard after it. You know, we had our pool guy and we had our AV guy setting up our media room and the home gym guy. And it got to the point where it felt more like operating and living within a small resort, which was great for, you know, visiting friends and family, but kind of hollow for uh, Allison and I. And, you know, it, it, there wasn't a single turning point but it was an increasing level of dissatisfaction with how life was going, which seemed counterintuitive to a lot of people because, you know, outwardly it looked like we were thriving and succeeding, but it didn't really feel like that. So yeah, the, the, I think it's been a little bit easier to continue along that path, even though Boulder's a affluent town, it's not so conspicuously so, so, and there's much more of an orientation towards you know, experience in enjoying, you know, time, you know, both solo and with, uh, with friends out in nature, things that don't really cost any money to do. And, uh, you know, everything from how people dress to the, you know, kind of places they go out to eat. For, for the most part, it's much more simple here. I think simple is the kind of uh, salient word here. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting experience now that we're uh, coming up on about seven years here in Colorado where each year, I mean, there of course are ups and downs and, you know, things that uh, <laughs> prompt some mood swings and all of that in, uh, in, in different areas of life. But overall we've continued to kind of winnow down our personal belongings and simplify our finances to the point where a lot of things are just kind of on autopilot now. You know, I can wear, the same gray t-shirts, you know, day after day. And we can, uh, we've gotten to the point, there's no debt servicing and there are just very few expenses. We've, we've cut out a lot of the noise and it means that we, you know, in its place have found a lot more time in our day and the flexibility and the, you know, frankly, the luxury of being able to do pretty much what we want from the time we wake up to when we go to bed is, far more valuable to me than, you know, the having a, a nicer watch or uh, fancy sunglasses or, you know, the, the, kind of, the kind of trappings of success that uh, keep people 
rolling, you know, well through their thirties, forties, fifties, and beyond trying to, uh, accumulate more and nicer things. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's perfectly salient and a direct parallel to the, to the Thoreau quote, I think. And I guess that the call out, however, is while you certainly came from a working class background, I can imagine that there would be people listening to this game. Well, that's fine for him because he created a company, it became big and then he sold it. So what's the relevance to, to the rest of society that doesn't have some sort of, you know, money event like that? Is it? Well, is there's it, a little ch- chicken in the egg there, Anthony, where, yes, yeah, so I did get, uh, you know, at my own, to my own detriment in, into a cycle once I had more money of spending more money but there was always the underpinning of discipline <laughs> specifically in respect to uh, personal finance. And that's something I learned, you know, from uh, hardworking immigrant parents and our grandparents rather. And, uh, you know, parents that had a few missteps with their own finances. And so kind of learned from the good and learned from the bad and took from both. And one of the things that was always super important to me was kind of not to be owned by anybody. Mm. And, that, you know, to some extent, I mean literally to be owned in that so many people have so much debt for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I didn't want college debt, so I worked my butt off uh, throughout college and made sure that I got out without having any loans. And I bought cars with cash, and that meant having to wait until I had enough money to do it and or buying cars that cost less, not having the fanciest car at any point uh, until I was uh, able to write a check for one. There were lots of things along those lines. We lived in an, a, you know, a series of fairly small houses that were well under the kinds of uh, mortgages we would have been able to qualify for, for that reason. I didn't ever want there to be a, this burden on me financially to have to make a certain amount of money to, to get by. And you know that, that's something that started early. I think that's a, a takeaway for anybody kind of at any level of income. Um, I mean, in the early years with Allison, she was literally selling plasma <laughs> to make extra money. And I, I was getting up at five in the morning to sell newspaper subscriptions before putting in a 12 hour day with uh, selling tickets from our efficiency uh, kitchen table. So we, we, we always made sure that we had a little bit of a cushion. We never spent more than we made. And that compounded over the years. So I think with or without the you know, sale of the business or even the success of the business, we likely would have sort of arrived at roughly the same place. Maybe a few less investments. But other than that, I, I think our lifestyle wouldn't have to be significantly different, even if we had a you know, fraction of the resources that we currently do. Yeah, I think that's really poignant. And it reminds me of a where I started to get on this track was after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a very famous book. And I thought a bit cliched before I read it, but when once I read it, 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 was re- it became really poignant for me because it's basically a tale of an individual within his family, which were spending money focused on needing the job promotions to, you know, to pay for the debt, to pay for the bigger house and the cars, et cetera. And then his friend's father, who had no education, you know, came from, quote unquote, the school of hard rock, hard knocks, and learned how to make 
himself the boss of the money rather than the money the boss of him. And I never had any education about money. And so, you know, out of through the military in my early years of training, there was some money coming in, but there was always a lot more going out. And it wasn't until I, I read that book that I sort of to change, I started to change gear. And so it's something that I'm focusing on with my kids to make sure that they can be in control of money and learn how it works and learn about, you know, the danger of, of spending too much and debt, et cetera. But I still feel like I'm scratching at the surface, but I've seen you with your kids and Sagan in particular and educating him about how to make, uh, how to control money and make it work for you, not the other way around, seems to be a real cornerstone of the way you parent with him. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, and, and I'm assuming it's uh, similar in most uh, Western countries in Australia and to how things are here in the U.S., but there's a real taboo about talking about any specifics of money. I think the people that have the money feel like it's tacky. The people that don't have the money feel like it's kind of a shameful topic for them. So it's, it's really unfortunate because we are really lucky to live in Western countries where there are all these mechanisms to save and invest that are, you can kind of just put them on autopilot and really accumulate, you know, quite a bit of wealth over a number of decades and sometimes much, much quicker than that. But people don't talk about it. And yeah, in, in our house, it's talked about maybe a little bit too much, but there are certainly tools out there for those that are, that are looking for, you can, you know, one of the simple things that, that we've done, and I, not my trick, I heard it on a podcast sometime years ago, you know, for our kids. And so I, you know, Sagan is 12, our daughter's story is seven. They have, you know, little ways that they can earn money, sometimes from us, sometimes it's from, you know, in Sagan's case, from babysitting or uh, shoveling snow or other things around the neighborhood. If they save that money, put it into a, saving, a simple savings account we set up for them, we match it. So there's an immediate and kind of tangible incentive for them to put money aside for later. And, you know, the $10 or $30 at a time that we might do for that, I think will end up ingraining habits in them that will last a lifetime and ultimately make them much less reliant on us down the line, which, you know, it's kind of a win-win. It's what you kind of hope for your kids, that they can stand on their own two feet and be productive members of society and hopefully have their lives, you know, squared away. And so, you know, that, that's one of a number of things that we do here. And in, in addition to talking about some of the kind of rudimentary pieces of, of finance, like how compounding interest, I mean, we, we, we may not use those words with them, but they, they understand the longer you put money aside, the more it grows, and then you can use it for things down the line that are more important to you. And it teaches them a little bit of sacrifice because they're, they're unlike some of their peers, they're not, you know, spending the first dollar, the dollar as soon as it comes in, but they can go online and we do this uh, probably every month or two and look at the interest that's grown. And in Sagan's case, we've set up a, uh, an actual trading account where he can buy index funds. So th there are things like that that I think are good habits to build and something that is so foreign, even among many, many people with the resources to do it, but uh, no reason not to. <laughs> and uh, you can kind of gamify it a little bit too. It doesn't have to be such a dry topic. And unfortunately, it's not something that they're going to learn really at any level of school. It's not really taught. So 
that's something I'd recommend for everybody. And there are all kinds of things online. Maybe we can link to some in the show notes. You can uh, order a few along. But uh, lots of people are kind of getting turned on to this and making things better multi-generationally in the process. What, what strikes me there is most powerful is that it's about the motivation that you have in doing this for your kids. And it's, it's not really about making them rich or wealthy or whatever. It's making them ultimately happy and free because you, you're teaching them the skills now to have a little, have a little discipline to create some savings. So they're, they're not burdened by, you know, the obligations of debt that so many of our children are destined to have, because that's the way Western society works. We're such a consumer orientated society. Getting debt at younger and younger ages is just, you know, becoming easier and easier every day. And anyone who's out there listening to this would not want their children to be burdened by the financial responsibilities that, that so many people are now. And, um, you know, and I think that's the difference. And when people don't like talking about money, and certainly within my family, we, we never spoke about money because it's just not the thing that you do. It's and it, and it, in a perverse way, you know, you'd talk about the new TV or the new car. So you talk about the things you buy with the money. And even even though, you know, that money may not have been ours, it was in essence on loan from the bank. But we never spoke about money in an empowering way. And yeah, again, you're not doing this to make your kids rich. You're doing this to give your kids the freedom to live their life the way they choose to live it, free from those crippling responsibilities that that so many kids, unfortunately, inevitably going to have in, in Western society. And I think that's the crux to it. Yeah, you're you know spot on there. And in connection with that, I think there's a lot to be said for delayed gratification in all areas of life. Right. And certainly that's, that's true in personal finance. They, uh, I think, learn a bit of discipline and self-control and it helps them understand that you know, a small amount of sacrifice now leads to, you know, great things in the future. And sometimes they're in the distant future. Sometimes it's a little, little closer. So we, we wouldn't uh, harp on it, but Anthony and I have uh, been a lot of miles running trails together and uh, we've, we've been able to support each other and laugh and cry and bleed and try to wipe away some snot together um, across quite, uh, quite literal points. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that allows us to do this, we're, we're, we're consistent and we're disciplined. And it's not that every time we go out, it's a joyful experience. I mean, sometimes it's, you're just plodding along and, and, and it, it can be miserable, but it sets us up for success. And, you know, <laughs> being a little uncomfortable, having a little less is good for kids. It's good. It's good for adults too. And, you know, it's, I think, for many people, hard to do that. You know, if they have no money, <laughs> they want to spend whatever dollars they can uh, scrape together and/or borrow to provide, you know, nicer things for their kids, and thereby putting themselves in more debt and their families kind of imperil their long-term prospects for success. And then the families that have plenty of money think nothing of ten dollars here or there to buy an extra little toy just because you happen to be uh, in the checkout line, doesn't you don't feel it. You don't feel the pain of the spending, but you are unwittingly developing 
exactly the opposite kinds of mindsets that you would want for your kids to have as their you know, brains are, are growing and they're kind of determining what life will look like down the line for them, where then by not getting the, the little trinket, it feels like deprivation. And I'm not at all about that. I would rather have our kids truly enjoy what they have, you know, even if that's fewer and sometimes even if it's nicer things, rather than just having a constant flow of junk. And by them deliberately putting aside money of their own volition, we, we never tell them that they have to save or that they have to put the money into, you know, an investment. But they have already, you know, at elementary school age, learned that, oh, well, there, there's upside in this. And I'm not really suffering by delaying when I get that next toy or it's quite easy to just hit the, the buy button on iTunes. But uh, we explained to them that, hey, that dollar now, a few years from now is going to be worth $2. And <laughs> then you can get twice as much if you decide at that point you want it. That's, that's the, the thinking there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned earlier that there's some tools that you use and some stuff online. Maybe I think it'd be really valuable if, if maybe you could compile some of those and we'll, we'll add those to the show notes. I think, I think that could be really powerful for some people out there if they're, if they're interested either for themselves or I think particularly for their kids. I, th- I think that's the real, you know, the real power because sort of the definition of compound interest, I think if you can, you know, be equipping the next generation with more and better skills to then go out and do, you know, more and better things with their money, then, you know, it becomes a, an intergenerational thing where, less and less people are, are burdened by the obligations of, of overspending and, and debt and, and therefore more of us are, are free to live the lives that we, that we truly want to live. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, make no mistake, I'm no guru on this stuff. I mean, everything that I'm talking about or I've learned from when we're having ramen every night, I was reading books about how to, you know, accumulate wealth and how to find good deals. I mean, they're there's Dave Ramsey, there's um, Clark Howard, there, there are a few others that uh, have had long-standing you know, radio shows and podcasts that have been talking about some of these things for you know, years and years and years. Some of it's kind of, like I said, aspirational. Some of it's really kind of tactical in, in ways to you know, save a little bit of money here and there without feeling like you're you know, sacrificing your happiness and comfort and being a little okay with being outside of the societal norms in how you uh, you know live your day to day, so yeah, I'll definitely put together a, uh, a list of the folks that I've listened to and read, and in some cases met and talked to, that have given me uh, you know some good guidance on this. There are tons of free resources out there, podcasts being one of the the easiest and most accessible, but uh, there there are other uh, websites and. I'm sure there's no shortage of memes out there too. If you need to, you know, be the cat that's going to hang in there, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's an episode right there. I think Mike, and <laughs> two or three other sort of topics we could we could get to, but and we might do those at a, at a later stage. Uh, is there anything anything else you want to you want to cover or areas to end up on? You know, one of the things that I have become absolutely convinced of is that having a motor far more important than being talented, being, you know, I'm not particularly bright. I'm not, <laughs> you know, in, you know, blessed with any, any kind of great skills. I mean, interviewing being the least among them, right? But uh, 
far more important to uh, you know have grit and determination and consistency than it is to be highly skilled, highly educated. Most of the people that I've come to know that have had success in most areas of life, it's been by force of will. Sticking with it is by far the most important thing. And that doesn't take anything special other than, you know, every day you get up and you work a little bit towards that goal. And uh, upshot of my thinking is that you need to be consistent. And that doesn't mean going to heroic efforts in your you know, career or in your physical pursuits or whatever it is that might be important to you or you're, there, there's some goal that you're trying to achieve. It's sticking with it. And I know that sounds kind of trite, but, you know, incremental improvement is achievable for pretty much anybody that's willing to stick with it. And, you know, th- those little wins that you just stack up along the way, you look back and say, hey, that, that was some hard work, but it wasn't any kind of miracle to get you to the point of, of the success you're looking for. No, absolutely. And you just remind me of something. My, my 12-year-old daughter came back from school the other day and she's just at a, a local high school here in Australia and um, they had a, a guest speaker come in to the year seven class talking about how to achieve extraordinary things, uh, basically how ordinary people achieve extraordinary things. And, you know, it's sort of, I thought this was kind of cutting edge stuff that people were writing books around for, for people in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But it turns out they're, they're starting to educate, uh, you know, 12-year-olds on this now. And it's about, it's about grit and resilience and taking risks and et cetera, et cetera. And there's this cute little example which is if Peter spends one hour studying for a test and gets an A, and if he is twice as smart as you, then how much study would you need to do to get an A? The answer being two hours. So the point that they're trying to get across is that, um, you know, working the, working the little bit harder to, to achieve results if you're not the genius or, or whatever, it's still possible with grit and determination. And there's such a, I think you're dead right, mate, there's such a, there's such a theme there of all the, of all the sort of quote unquote, you know, people that have made it or people that have lived a life less ordinary that, that I know. And, you know, hopefully I can be continuing to interview some of those people well into the future. The common underlying trend is resilience and, and grit and, and sort of motivation and determination that sort of set them above. It's, it certainly wasn't natural talent. That's for sure. Well, I, I love what you're doing with the podcast. It's uh Really, I think it can be a good source of inspiration for a lot of people. You know, having uh, heard some of the early takes of uh, your other guests, kind of humbled just to be uh, in their presence. But uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Happy to spout on more anytime and, you know, wish you luck with it. And I'm sure we'll be spending some more time together soon. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate your time, mate. And um, I dare say you'll be coming back on the program in, uh, in months or years down the track. Maybe we'll do one on ultra running, but, uh, but that's for a later date. Yeah, I look forward to it, man. Cheers, bud. It's great. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, 
send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.